HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we're celebrating Mardi Gras with an ode to the king cake, the most delicious custom of carnival season. This is kind of like terrible comparison, but it's kind of like a braided New Orleans babka, if you really think about the actual technique of it. Do you know why they put a baby in the cake yet? You'd better be careful where you get that cake because your friends and coworkers in New Orleans are going to have an opinion about it. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Kathy Corison. We'll talk to Kathy about life, Cabernet, and Corison. We'll taste one of Kathy's wines for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Kathy Corison has been making wine for over four decades. She was the first women, woman winemaker proprietor in the Napa Valley at her Corison Winery, located in the bench land of the valley since 1987. Her focus has been Cabernet, and her sought-after wines are alive, powerful, elegant, aromatic, complex, and long-lasting. Great descriptions. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Kathy. Thank you. Thanks for sitting down with us. Uh, we are taping the show. We are in New York City. Kathy is in for the Wine and Spirits 100 Symposium. All right, Kathy, you have a long history tied to Napa Valley. Um, and everyone has a history, but yours is very significant. Um, and I want you to tell us about your journey in life and wine that got you to the present, which is owning Chorus and Winery, which has been many years, but 
there's been, you know, growth within there. So you don't have to start with kindergarten and all of that. But let's talk about, you know, when wine became an interest in that point on. It was a long time ago. I was minding my own business, studying biology at Pomona College. I was a sophomore in college. I was 19 years old. And I, on a complete whim, I took a wine appreciation class. And I've got to say, it ran with me, and I've never looked back. Um, I thought I was going to be a marine biologist, but I fell in love with wine. Um, for all the usual reasons, it's delicious. You share it with friends and family. It makes food taste better and vice versa. But for me, layered in on top of that was the fact that wine is a whole series of is the result of a whole series of living systems. And I was a biologist, and that's really what grabbed me. So your perspective was somewhat scientific. <laughs> right, life sciences, though. Yeah. 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 And up until then, there was no real interaction or turn-on with wine that was significant? No, I grew up in suburban Southern California. My dad was a lawyer, and he drank Gallo Hardy Burgundy. Jesus, you'd think a lawyer would go a step up, right? <laughs> no, you know, he's, he's, he's left us now. But um, it wasn't that he couldn't afford good wine, but he never wanted to spend more than $8 for a bottle of wine. Kathy, there's still $8, you know, bottles out yeah, there. There still. are, there are, and there should be. But. All right, so Pomona College, biology, wine class, that sets you in a different direction. Where does that take you? Well, two years later, I graduated. And with a degree in biology, and two days later, I was in the Napa Valley. Because back in those days, in the mid-'70s, there weren't other regions in California. Sonoma was had been around longer, but there wasn't as much expertise there. Napa was just emerging from prohibition. Um, it had taken decades to finally emerge um, but it was it was starting to happen, and so That's I literally what drew you there? I I just drove there, <laughs> and then uh, worked in the Napa Valley at a wine shop, wine bar, for six months, and then in an, at the Sterling Tasting Room for another six months. All the while, I was running over the hill to Davis, um, taking care of some chemistry that I had managed to avoid. <laughs> All those years. Courses, you mean? Because I knew I wanted to okay. to go to Davis and get my master's degree in winemaking. Um, and there, was, there were, was some chemistry I needed to clean up to do that. And I started taking the wine courses that year as well, winemaking courses. And uh, then a year later, I was in the master's program. And you got your master's and in enology? As quickly as I could in enology at Davis. Working and studying? Um, I worked, by then I, I lived over there mostly, and I worked, but it was in a lab doing the research for my master's thesis. Looking back, was it important that you spend time early on getting your chops you well, know, down with all of that? Two two thoughts. One is that I don't think anybody can make wine consistently year after year make it well without a good technical foundation um, and then besides that back in the mid-70s I felt like as a woman I really needed that piece of paper there just weren't more because you were a woman absolutely it's like oh women don't have that kind of background 
You know, women don't, women didn't make wine. That I knew. We'll, yeah. we'll get to that. Yeah. All right. So you get the degree, and obviously you want to take it somewhere. So, Right. And my timing was extremely good. I, I arrived in the Napa Valley June of 1975. The Paris tasting happened in 76. And it's a little bit of dumb luck, frankly. You know, there's a lot of good made wine made all over the world, but it catapulted the Napa Valley onto the world stage in a way that has made me feel like I was just hanging on for dear life ever since. Like it, immediately? Like as it, soon it was, as all the news it, of that kind of came back and settled? It that was, was it? it? People were curious now? It was immediate, but th- there were also, there was a, a new generation of people that had come into the valley, Don Chapelet among them, um, that were determined to make world-class wine. They knew they could. Napa Valley had been making world-class wine since the late 19th century. But it was just finally uh, uh, scratching our way out of Prohibition, which had ended in 1933. (laughs) So when I got there, the Napa Valley was happening. Warren Winyarski was just starting to make wine at Stag's Leap. And then the Paris tasting happened. And it just... So what does that mean? People well, are it's just attention to the valley as a world-class. more interest in people coming and maybe opening wineries. That was the it's, beginning of. It certainly drew more people. That was good luck. Yeah. yeah. Right, so where are you at that point in 75, 76, 77? Well, I was at Davis getting my master's degree in 76, late 76 to late 78, I graduated and took an internship at Fremark Abbey Winery in St. Helena, Napa Valley. Um, In those days, they always had an intern from Davis, and it took me a couple of years to get that job, but but I was the intern there in 1978, which basically, it was a wonderful balance to my technical foundation. I knew I wanted to be in small wineries. Um, and it allowed me to learn the nuts and bolts of running a cellar, and I, I was a cellar rat. So it wasn't just washing. I bottled all summer. You did a little of everything. Absolutely it everything. It wasn't just cleaning hoses and buckets and stuff. Oh, no. I, small wineries, that's the wonderful thing about small wineries is that you do everything. Everybody does a little bit of everything. So I bottled all summer for them, getting ready, and then helped them get the crush equipment ready, I sanitized a lot of tanks. I was at the bottom of the totem pole. But then throughout harvest, I, you know, I dumped grapes and I loaded presses and I ran presses and I dug out fermenters when it was time to press and then um, did a lot of barrel work when the wines were did going down the barrel. Did you work multiple vintages there? At Fremark, no. Just but because I had graduated, um, I had my degree from Davis, I did stay there for eight months. So I had the oh, right. it was an luxury of right. seeing almost the entire cycle, which was very valuable for me. Where does that lead you? Well, I, um, from there, I went up to a little tiny winery on Spring Mountain called Everdon. Why? Long defunct. V-E-R-D-O-N. Not around? Long, long defunct. But um, Brad Is Webb, anyone on the property? Well, it became Tara Valentine. Okay. If you know where that is. I know, Spring Mountain? On Spring Mountain. Yeah. Um, But at the time, Brad Webb was one of the investors in in Fremark Abbey. 
and he was he's an enologist who was famous for being the first winemaker to use oak barrels french oak barrels and he was at oak and french or french oak french oak okay. barrels but he became famous for making chardonnay in french oak barrels and Fremark abbey was very famous for the chardonnay their chardonnays in those days but we also made very good um, Cabernet Sauvignon as well. So it was just a terrific eight-month crash course in how you t- get the grapes from grapes to wine and, and in the sort of nuts and bolts way. I, right. knew the, I knew the science of it. Right. But it, so it was very valuable. But from there, Brad Webb was consulting at Everdon, and he got me my first winemaking job. It was a teeny tiny project. It was only 60 tons. But we shoveled every grape into the crusher, and then it was time to shovel, to, to load the press. That was all with a shovel. Um, so that was another very... Were you the winemaker? I was the winemaker and, wow. and only That's <laughs> only pretty quick, employee. little trial by fire. Yes, it was, yeah. Um, that's what it was like in those days. There were Do so many opportunities. Do you remember the first wine? Did it live up to expectation? I was very lucky and very careful. <laughs> Do you remember the vintage? Was it a decent vintage? It was 1979. It actually was a very good Not vintage. Um, my favorite vintages have always been the longest, coolest vintages that that the grapes can actually get ripe, and it turns out that's every year, even in 2011. Right. Um, 1979 was a very, very cool vintage. It rained quite a bit toward the end. But it was long and cool and made very structured wines. I I loved the wines from 79. Did you know that then? Because that's important now, and it has an effect on the wine. I mean, certainly vintage year, weather, all that stuff has an effect. That kind of worked for you and what you liked. Well, I I had cut my teeth. When I took the wine appreciation class at Pomona College, it was taught by a Francophilic anglo Chinese professor. Okay. Does that sum up <laughs> yeah. liberal arts education or what? Yeah. But anyway, uh, John Hager, he's still an important writer today. Uh, he taught the course. He's Francophilic, and it was all around French wines, which, frankly, in those days was all there really was. They were the fine wines of the world. So I cut my teeth on wines that were more elegant and nuanced. So I already had a predisposition. Of the style. Or the and type. I think 1979 was the first time I realized that to to have good natural acidity by the time the grapes are ripe, you need a cool season. You were very lucky in the circumstances, the people, I'm, I'm the places, the duck. time. Very well, luck duck. is you know part of it. Timing. All right, so that's um, that's that was Everton, right? That first one? Right. So I did right. two vintages there. All right. So f- bring me up to, because there's a bunch of stuff in between. Bring me up to Chorus and in between there. Well, the, my, my most important stop was Chapelet. I made the wine there for 10 years. And it's... Give me the years, the window. All the 80s. And basically, I think I had a portfolio the wines I made, I made lots of different wines that you've ever done. I made Chenin Blanc, I made Riesling, I made Zinfandel, Cabernet. I don't think there was any Chardonnay. But I had a portfolio in a way, and so I think that helped me get the job at Chapelet, where I ran a 30,000-case winery for 10 years. Big jump. Big jump. 
I was 26 years old when I started and that they job. And they were cab specialists. I mean, very that was much definitely... So. They were always, already very famous for their Cabernets, but made lots of things. There was Chenin Blanc there. There was Riesling there. The same varieties that were planted in those days. Gorgeous piece of property, right? Chapla. I mean, one beautiful. of the nicest in the valley, for sure. It's Lucky. beautiful. Yeah. Um, so you spend, what'd you say, almost 10 years there. Yeah, 10 vintages. And really dug in about the type of style and wines you wanted to make. And really, we were able to perfect your experiences and all of that. Yeah. Why do you leave? What happens? Because I started to make a little bit of wine for myself. There? Yeah, I actually made the first couple of vintages there. Don Chapelet was very supportive. The grapes weren't his grapes. Oh, no. Okay. No. by then, there was I, I left Chapelet because there was a wine inside of me that needed to get out. That's the only way I can describe it. Chapelet is a mountain vineyard. Some of the very best Cabernets in the Napa Valley come from the mountains. But this wine that was both powerful and elegant had to come from what we call benchland, which is our jargon for the alluvial fans coming out of the hills. And... Some of the most famous Cabernets for a, probably more than 100 years that come from what we call benchland. It's alluvial soils. They have um, good water holding capacity, but they're very rocky and gravelly and so very well drained. So this wonderful combination of providing the water that the vines need when they need it in the spring and into the early summer. But then because it doesn't rain in Napa Valley, it simply does not rain. That's unusual in the world in the summer. Um, the vines run out of water right when they should stop growing and get busy ripening. And if the vines are still trying to grow when they ought to be ripening fruit, the Cabernet maintains green flavors. Right. So it's that wonderful combination of having grown the vine, but then running completely out of water. They stop growing and get busy ripening. And it's just a very, I believe it's one of the best places in the world to grow Cabernet Sauvignon. Which is where Corison is. So you have all this experience now making wine, and now you have an idea of the wine you want to make. But Chapelet didn't have the grapes. So you go and find the Benchland grapes, make it there, and then obviously what happens? You move out. I was a vagabond for... 12 or 13 years. I, After I bought, Chapelet? Yes. I bought, bought the best grapes money could buy, the best barrels money could buy, but I didn't have a winery. Did you vagabond on the wineries? You made them at exactly. multiple I, I places? I used other people's facilities. Okay. I did the work, but I used other people's excess capacity because the industry was growing so fast that what, there were lots of wineries around that hadn't really grown into their full was capacity. Was that moonlighting? You were doing that... While you had well, other jobs, sort of. or at some point you were... I, in a way, <coughs> I, as I left Chapelet, I started my own project, but I didn't have any way to support myself. So I consulted with a few wineries over those the first 10 years or so. I made the first few vintages of uh, Staglin Family Vineyard. I made the first 10 vintages of Fritz Maytag's York Creek. I made the first 10 vintages of Long Meadow Ranch. All great places. All part of it was sharing facilities, and part of it was just I needed to moonlight, to, right? To make everything. So does a work point out. come where you're like, listen, can't be a vagabond anymore? Well, yes, and and in the meantime, I had married William Martin, my husband, and he became involved very early on in '92. You married him in '90. 
I married him in 92. 92. So, but you technically opened Chorus and Winery before you married him, right? Right. I When I met him, I was selling my first vintage, which was the 1987. I met him in 90. We got married in 92, but it turned out that we have very compatible but different strengths. And so he there came a point that everything was booming in the Napa Valley, and the 1995 vintage was a very big vintage, almost double normal. And big there as was far as quantity. quantity. It was an excellent vintage, too. Uh, but there was a time when we thought we wouldn't have a place. There wouldn't be room for all the grapes we needed to crush. It all worked out, but um, the writing where, was on the wall. And that's, that's where when Martin we just, was good. William Martin, um, he is. He had worked in architects' offices. He's a designer, and he designed a barn for us. And it took us a couple of years to get all the use permits and to figure out how we were going to make it happen. But then we built a barn, and so in 1999, we built the barn, and that was our first vintage in our own facility. So 99. 87 was the first vintage. So it was something like 13 vintages later and six locations wow. later, we finally had a home. Now, when you built the barn, and there's a couple things we need to cover, did you build a house by the barn or were you no. living somewhere else? And the barn was on the bench land. The barn was on the bench and land. And you had the property around the barn. William, William um, identified the property. I knew I needed bench land, which is just a, a little part of the valley at the bottom of the hills between Rutherford and St. Helena. Right. And so he took the beautiful old soil maps and, and identified this property, which happened to be on the highway, happened to have a house on it that was built in 1898. Was, we were told it was condemned. It was in very bad shape. We were also told that it was on AXR. That sounded like bare Explain land. Explain what AXR, AXR is. AXR rootstock is a rootstock that rootstock. turned out to be insufficiently resistant to phylloxera. Phylloxera had wiped out the wine industry worldwide in the late 19th century, came back through California in the 90s, 80s and 90s, um, because Everybody had gone wholesale to AXR1 rootstock, which was somewhat resistant, but not resistant enough. So eventually it started to die. We were told that this piece that is now Kronos Vineyard was on AXR. Condemned house, AXR, it sounded like bare land to us. So for some reason, I think you may have liked that AXR, right? Well, did, did you get pull it up? We knew that we would need to replant it. Okay. All so, of it, pretty much? Oh, yeah. Okay. It was... But the reason we were able to buy it for a bare land price is because of the condemned house. Supposed, it turns out it wasn't condemned. Um, and the vineyard was St. George rootstock instead, it so happened. The gentleman who had been born in that house and had planted the vineyard in 1971 was able to tell us that it was St. George rootstock. This is all while we were in escrow. We didn't breathe a word to anybody. So we came out of it having bought the property for bare land prices with a very old but good vineyard and a house that William was able to turn into a very nice house over time. Well, that was his wheelhouse. He knew how to look at something exactly. and 
exactly. He and he he saw the he saw the potential, and he knew that it was just over ten acres, and that in the Napa Valley, because of the um, the zoning, the um, ag preserve, you need ten acres on the valley floor to build a winery. And it was something like 10.01 wow. acres. You just made so, it. So, yeah. So it was an excellent Now, you were right on the highway, obviously. That's been helpful as well. Through the years, you just saw people and traffic escalate, right? Right. And, you know, we've been through some pretty tough times since 1999. The 2000s were very difficult for the wine business. And I think one of the reasons we our doors stayed open was that we did were able to sell a lot of wine direct to consumers. You were, you were in plain sight type we thing, which is a nice thing. Um, all right, so you're you still have the winery, you have the house, you have the Kronos Vineyard. We'll talk about you know other another important vineyard that you. Um, purchased and we'll talk about the wines but i just wanted to cover a few things with you tell me if this story is correct you had a professor that once told you that uh, a woman would never work in napa as a winemaker well, i did well bless, that bless his soul um cornelia so was my major professor at davis and he i think i think his intentions were good he knew i wanted to work in napa and I think he wanted to be sure my expectations so it was were more reasonable. of a I, it was an kind encouragement of a, than a discouragement in a way sort of yeah oh I think he just wanted to be sure I wasn't being unreasonable and wasn't going to be disappointed I also think he had he had ties to big wineries in the Central Valley and I think and in those days that's what women did they ran laboratories and I think he had a a pretty fancy laboratory job that he was hoping I would take so he turned out to be wrong. I'm sure you endured your share of gender discrimination. Fair to say that? Sure. Um, has Have things changed much in your eyes in the well, Valley? Well, things have changed hugely. I think among the things that have changed, there, there are women at all levels. It took longer for women to get jobs in the vineyards, but now there are women in the vineyards, vineyard management, cellars, winemaking um, still full control winemakers are still only 12 to 13 percent in I, napa yeah i heard 15 maybe and you're saying less i, I don't so think so women control right that's a small but in cal across all of california it's only 10 percent so so yes it's changed hugely and how do we over, change it more well over time i th i think that to some extent, it's been an advantage to be a woman because we kind of stuck out like sore thumbs. So for better or worse, people notice what we did. And I think it's been well established that some of the best winemakers are women. And so it's just a matter of time. I, I guess. I mean, if you stick out, you're making great wines. I know you are willing to mentor and, you know, bring mm. people in, and that'll all fan out, which is a nice thing. So you're... There are lots of women in the pipeline right now. I was going to say it's you're encouraged. really and fast right encouragement now. Encouragement is the reality that there are people in the pipeline. That's a nice thing. Um, I want to touch on this subject just quickly because I'm curious on your take. We're taping the show now. It's mid-January. It'll probably air somewhere within three, four weeks. Um, we're sort of at the precipice of this tariff thing. I mean, we can get a mm -hmm. ruling today, literally. 
Will that have any effect on you, on California wineries? Will it Absolutely. potentially be a positive because people are going to look for domestic? What's no. your take on yeah, that? I mean, there might be a small uptick. I'm not talking the, about the workforce, which is it, devastating. In the short term, there may be a slight uptick. But all of the restaurants we rely on, all of the distribution channels we rely on, all of the people that love wine, including myself, love the wines of the world. And so... It, for me, it'll be a personal disaster because I drink a lot of European wines. Um, and then I think because it's going to affect the people that buy my wine so dramatically, um, distributors and restaurants and wine shops, that I, th you know, their livelihood is at stake. And if they don't exist, where am I going to sell my wine? So it's definitely going to... Uh... Yeah. So I think it's going to hurt everybody. I know it's going to hurt everybody. It's a, I mean, it'll be devastating. Yeah, I mean, the community has mobilized um, on social media. A bunch of important people went down to Washington. I've done my part. I've written lots of letters. Yep, <laughs> me too. Um, let's hope for the best. And by the time this show uh, airs, we have a uh, good result. Um, but I'm not happy to hear, you know, your response, which is what I think everyone thinks. Um, the other thing I want to talk to you quickly about is, I wouldn't call it global warming, but I would call it climate change. And within the word cli words climate change, it's more the change. I think mm -hmm. we're, we're seeing um, a lot of change, and I think that's the issue. Um, you, not uniquely, but not as many, have worked, <laughs> you know, 40 vintages and how has this changed? I mean, where are we at today? Is it something you? I know you will worry about, but does it alter the way you do things now? It's hard to really know what's happening. In the last 10 years, we've had the hottest vintage ever ripening season, and we've had the coldest ripening season. We had 2017, and we had 2011 within six years of each other, hottest and coldest on record. So it's a little hard to know what to worry about, um, except, and, and I'd also say that I'm grateful that I make a, um, a late variety that needs a lot of heat to get ripe. But of course, we're all very concerned about general um, average warming. I mean, because I've spoken to guests they're making wine in England because mm -hmm. <laughs> of the uh, climates now. There's a different perspective on how you harvest in Champagne. Um, so I guess Napa is a little inconsistent, but there's not, you know, one effect yet. Yeah, it's, and I don't know whether that's because warming in the center of the state is pulling more of the marine influence in. So it's actually. With, if you don't look at 2017, we've actually gotten cooler. So it's really hard to know. So pulling 17 out, the trend shows a movement towards cooler? There's a cooling, yeah. And you talk about the heat, so. Right. and we, So that's, that was my point. It was more change. And historically, change. Cabernet, both in Napa and in Bordeaux, didn't always get ripe. And it was the warmest finishes that got it ripe. So, you know, so far we're all thinking about, well, are there other varieties that from regions that evolved in regions that are hotter that would keep good natural acidity with more heat? I mean, we're all thinking about that. Some people are actually planting things to start to 
experiment. Um, there are things like shade cloth being experimented with. Um, Whatever you have to yeah. so consider there's, there's, to make the type but of But we really don't know much yet. All right, Kathy, we have to take a quick break. Um, I'm talking to Kathy Corson. Kathy is a winemaker and a proprietor of her own winery. Um, Kathy, when we come back, I want to talk to you about sustainability, organics, and I want to get a little deeper into your winery and wines. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Kathy Corison. Um, Kathy, I want to get into your wines a little. Um, but I want to talk to you um, about your wine specifically. You've said many times that wine is alive. Mm. <laughs> I think you alluded to that, you know, in the science, you know, earlier. What do you mean by wine is alive? Well, first of all, it's the result of a whole series of living systems. It grows on a living grapevine, and it it is fermented by a living organism. We don't make wine. Mother Nature makes wine. Um, we age it in an oak barrel. It was a tree. We bottle it in what is essentially sand, you know, it's just, that's not alive exactly, right. but it's melted sand. melted sand. And then we cork it with the bark of another oak tree. So, and so that's one level. And then on another completely different level, once the wines are in the bottle, age-worthy red wines live and breathe. And they, they have a life. They change. They evolve. Um, they're alive. The reason I asked you that kind of a simple question but you answered it so eloquently with so many elements I think people forget that or don't even realize it and I wanted them to hear it from you literally from the bark to the sand you know to the yolk so that you know that's why um, wine we don't is a add anything we crush grapes and a living organism turns it into wine 
Well, let's talk about that. You practice, you practice sustainability in organics, you know, for a long time in the field and in the cellar. Um, talk to me about what those practices are. Bring me from the grape in the field and how you approach that to your cellar practices. Well, from the minute we bought Kronos Vineyard in 1995, we closed escrow the last day of 1995. So the first vintage of Kronos was 96. It's been farmed organically. So now that's getting to be a quarter century. Um, so organic farming really is, number one, we're very lucky to be in California. It's a benign climate. We don't have a lot of disease pressure. Um, so it's relatively easy to grow grapes organically, and I don't think there's any reason in the world or excuse not to, frankly. But th that's always been very important. But the I obvious question is, or from my take, Napa was never then and even now a big practitioner of organics. I know there's a shift, and I know there's people yeah. doing it. Do you agree? Absolutely. We were early adopters, and Long Meadow Ranch, Ted Hall and Laddie Hall, were really early adopters. And I made their wine and watched them do it uh, bef that just was a before good we— influence? It was a very good influence. And it made me realize it not, it was— not only was it possible, but there was no reason not to do it. And then in my in my own life, I buy organic food, and I, my kids always had organic food. That's always the I'm argument. A, Everyone's I'm fixated a, on organic foods, and then they're yeah. drinking these manufactured wines. And you know, I'm a I'm a biologist, and I have a, a I have a background in chemistry, and I mean, I just don't I don't want all of those all of those. You know more than most. Yeah, I know too much. Right. <laughs> and and conventional farming has only been, with all those chemicals, has only been happening since World War II. Right. It's not but very it, long. it did its damage in those and I 20, think it, 30, 40 years. And it continues years. to. In Europe. And it know, continues was, to. So, you know, I asked you, how do we get more women in the business? How do we get more people? Let's start in the valley, you know, oh, to pay attention to these. It's happening? It's absolutely happening. And, in fact... People may not be organic, but everybody's moving toward much more sustainable farming. Right. Hugely. So that's a step. Oh, it's important. And I guess if they get there, they may think about the uh, next step. It's funny because you read all these books about Napa and Napa history, how protective of the land, agrarian, you know, cutting trees down, just throwing mm -hmm. wineries, and all that is great, but they never really talked about organics, pesticides. Yeah. You know, there's the runoff. So hopefully um, we'll get towards that. Well, I think we've gone a long, long way. Yeah. Tell me about, now tell me about the cellar. So you're practicing organics in the field. It's all about the grape. You bring it in. I assume you're low intervention. <laughs> I can't make the wine any better than the grapes that come in the door. And I try to stay out of it as much as I can. I think of myself as a steward more than anything. I'm just watching I have a technical foundation, so if anything, I'm there to keep anything from going astray. But um, great grapes make great wine, period. So that's the yeah. start, and yeah. and that's the end. Yeah. So it's... Very traditional winemaking. Now, you've kind of weaved this in and out of our discussion, and I hate to ask this question straight up, but... 
it's a good opportunity for you to describe the wines. The question is, you know, what's the style or type? Mm. But really the characteristics, the type of wines that you're making. And there's a lot of words that I want you, I want to hear, and I know you're going to say like acidity and how do you balance power and finesse. Tell me about the wines. Well, that's exactly what I was trying to do. I, I mentioned this wine when I started my project, this wine that was both powerful and elegant. Powerful Cabernet is powerful. I don't care how you grow so it. So you start with a powerful grape. Yeah. It's, it it doesn't matter do how it. you grow it, how you pick it, how you make it. It's going to be powerful. But for me, it's much more interesting at the intersection of elegance. And they sound opposite. They sound like they have to be two different things, but they can wind up in the same glass at the same time. And I've been playing with that all my life. And it's kind of in your head is where this happens. How do you get there? Yeah. And so for me, a lot of that is, that's what I love about Benchland fruit. Um, I love about the St. Helena Appalachian is, um, has slightly higher acidity than the Appalachians around it. And the wines from the Benchland are powerful, but they also are very aromatic. And the tannins from that part of the world, if the grapes are grown properly, come into the winery feeling like velvet. And that's why my wine style can be drunk at any juncture. When we first released... Meaning early, middle, aged. Yeah, they're just like an interesting person. You could pop it open in a couple years. It's not like, and no knock, like a dun where it takes 30 years or so. Right, you don't have to wait for very astringent tannins to resolve because the tannins already feel like velvet. If you were to measure the tannins, you get a very big number, and that helps it age. It helps it feel good in your mouth. But the tannins that are there are very soft so when you say your Cabernets speak of place, and we've spent time talking about the bench land, the soil, that gives you every opportunity to make that type of wine. And I think that's one of my jobs, because that's one of the wonderful things that wine could do. It can speak of both time and place, and then it goes forward into time, speaking of that time and place. You know, it's, it's a silly question, but... You know your style and you know what it takes. Can you make a wine in an area that doesn't possess those traits and make the type of wine you want? Absolutely not. You can't. You know, for a while I was making wine at Chapelet and for myself at the same time. But that's the realization you had. This I want to you have in your head, you said, the wine. I couldn't make a Chapelet Cabernet down on the benchland or vice versa. Uh, because anything that grows in the ground can speak of place. All right, so you were fortunate to land on Kronos, which is um, where you built the winery and, and um, have the 10 plus acres. You sought out to find another place or more grapes, and not too long ago, you took on another vineyard, right? Right, and it's actually not that we sought that vineyard. You were using. I had been sourcing that vineyard. Right. I bought the grapes that's, that's from that I mean. vineyard for 30 years, almost before we purchased it through three different owners. And it really was more a matter of securing the grapes going forward 
And then also, now I manage that vineyard, and I, I think we're growing better grapes now because I have more control. So it's You it's, manage it because you own it. Right. So even when you were contracting, releasing, you only had so much input? Didn't that drive you crazy? Right. I've always, I only source vineyards that I do have a say in the farming, but it's still not the same. Just like making wine in other people's facilities is not the same as making wine in our own. Right. I know we can grow better grapes and we can make better wine by having the control we need to do exactly what we need to do when we need to do it. Right. Both places. Right. Um, so Sun Basket is close to Kronos. If you had a really good arm, you could hit it you with could. a rock. And what? how big is it? It's seven acres. Kronos is nice. eight. So um, And it shares all the same soil exposure. It's a, li- it's a little different. The little? vines are very different. Kronos Vineyard is one of the oldest Cabernet vineyards in the Napa Valley because it's on St. George. It didn't have to be replanted in the 90s. Um, and so it's almost 50 years old now. Very, very special. Wide spacing, crazy, everything's kind of crazy about it, but makes us incredible wines. Sunbasket was replanted in the 90s, so it's younger, but it's mature now. It's quarter century old. And um, younger vines, newer rootstocks, different spacing, different trellising. The soils at Kronos are very gravelly, but they're even gravelier on most of Sunbasket. There are parts of that that are 70% wow. gravel. So the wines are different. The Kronos makes more brooding, darker wines that are very viscous, um, not because of alcohol. The alcohols are in the 12s and 13s always. But Sunbasket... Explain that quickly. When you get to alcohols 14 and 15, it creates a sensation of viscousness and almost... Well, no, this viscosity has nothing to do with alcohol. It, Not alcohol, yours. Right. Alcohol can be a component of viscosity. Right. But in this case, and Kronos... And perceived is, sweetness, too, right? Mm-hmm. But Kronos is, is it's the grapes. There's a viscosity. Um, not so far away, Sunbasket on very gravelly soils makes very um, bright red and blue fruit-driven wines. And it's always been very, um, very useful in as, as a major component of the Chorus and Napa Valley blend. And it's always been one of my favorite vineyards. So it is so much fun now to be able to bottle a little bit of it and let it come out and show what it it does, but it's very different from the Kronos. So let's make sure people aren't confused. When they look towards carrot Corison for wines, there's the Corison bottling, mm-hmm. there's the Corison Kronos vineyard, there's the Corison Sunbasket. Right. And Sunbasket exclusively. Or majority? It's mostly Cabernet, but there's a little bit of Cabernet Franc. Okay. I didn't even mean varietal. I meant the the Cabernet is all from the vineyard. Yes. Right. Yes, it's 100%. And then you'll put in a little Cab Franc. Anything else? No, I don't blend in the Franc. I bottle the Franc separately. Oh, okay. Oh, right, right, right. It's only four or five barrels every year. It's tiny. It doesn't leave the winery much. Um, Then the Kronos is... 100% 100% cab? Yes. All my All Cabernets the- are 100%. The Napa Valley is the wine I established the label on 33 years ago. We have 33 vintages of that in the barn. Um, 
And then it was later that we had the Kronos that we chose to keep doing the sourced Napa Valley, add the Kronos Vineyard, single vineyard designate on top, and now there's also this, the Sun Basket. So what's in the Corison? What, what? Well, it's three vineyards, all between Rutherford and St. Helena, all on... Um, on the bench, bench between Rutherford and St. Helena, actually all in the St. Helena Appalachian. Um, historically, they were all purchased grapes. Now Sunbasket is still an important component of that. So we own that and then purchase grapes from a couple other vineyards. And those are the flagship wines. Like you said, you make a Cab Franc <laughs> from a small bunch of vines and all that. Um, you're still making a Rosé and a Gewürztraminer? Yeah, on your Corazon label? Corazon, yeah. It means Corazon, Corazon. Means, yeah, it means heart, heart in Spanish, yeah. Not, um, not easy to find and delicious. Well, it's so small that it really doesn't leave the winery very much. It's yeah. only 150 cases, but it's really fun to make and fun to drink. It's nice to have. It's totally dry. It's inspired by the wines of Alsace that are Germanic aromatic varieties but made with French sensibilities. I love the wines of Alsace. Mm. Um, so this wine is, is that. It's totally dry, um, but it's very aromatic, and um, it's good to have for reception at the winery. It's good to have when I do a wine dinner for first courses. Great it's fabulous diversity to pour your own wines. Fun to make, fun to drink, but it's, it's almost home winemaking scale. Well, your home winemaking is like um, Danielle or Jean-Georges, you know, making you a meal or something. Um, there's a certain expertise to it. So that's an incentive for people when they're in Napa yeah. to come by the winery. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask you about, because I kind of fell trapped to it. There was a period of 15, 20 years, hmm. I guess we call it the parkerization, where the styles kind of went out of control and that's that's a direction you never really went and the show is a testament to how you make wines this show and you know your mm -hmm. commitment to all of that I, i'm just curious because like i said i felt praised why did people move towards that and now they're definitely pulling away more people are making restrained wines and more people it's like why was i attracted to that was because parker was giving it ratings was it cool i mean well there's fashion there's fashion in wine just like there's fashion in anything else and fashion comes and fashion goes um I came into this project, like I mentioned earlier, with this very clear sense of what I was trying to do, and it was that power and elegance thing. And by then I knew what I needed to do to do that, and I did that. So that was my job for me. Um, and so I wasn't really paying attention to, or, or I wasn't um, swayed by style because I was doing what I thought those vineyards did best. Did that ever affect sales? Like, oh, yeah, sure. people are buying sure. this unctuous, crazy cough syrup, and that's yeah. not what I'm making. Yeah. But I, I ain't changing my... I just couldn't. So a part of the answer is fashion. Mm -hmm. People didn't mind that style. I guess people got well, you know, tired I, of it. I believe in diversity <clears throat> in wine. I think the people that are good at making that style should keep doing it because we... 
we have different moods, we have different foods, we all have different preferences. That's and, the beauty of wine. Right. Pick I what th- you like. I think the only problem for me during those days was that we lost the diversity. And not just the style, we, do- we lost the diversity of varieties. And now there's great wine made all over the world. That's a great point. All sorts of new varieties. Um, so it's just a, it's a richer, more diverse That's a great business today. That's a great point. I'm glad... Uh, there's definitely a movement towards what you've been doing. <laughs> you well, know, it's, that's, it's certainly what I like to drink. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think yeah. people but, want more diversity. All right, Kathy, nobody leaves the Grape Nation interview without answering our wine list. We ask our guests the same five questions. Spontaneous, quick, don't dwell on them. You're fine. Um, so here's the first question. What are you drinking now? What's in the fridge? What are you trying? Is it seasonal because you're in New York? What's Well, I have been in New York for a couple of days, but there's always a Mosul in my refrigerator. Okay, so you're a Riesling I l- guy. I love Riesling. Okay. Um, what do you love about it? The Mosul's. acidity? The- oh, everything. The brightness, the acidity, the... Especially Mosels are just so pretty. Uh, so Riesling specifically from Mosel, is this something you've loved for? Ever. Okay. Yeah. Um, Do you have a favor too? Oh, I, I don't, don't want to say that. Okay. They're just, they're just, okay. but there's always one I think in the fact that you limited to Mosel, because I yeah. post all your answers. You know, okay. that's why I ask people, because I share them. They're, yeah. they're, believe it or not, they're more interested than anything. Anything else? Um, and then I just love the wines of the world. I mean, favorites are... Uh, Champagne Brut Rosé. I love Cote Roti. I love, I've been on a huge northern Italian jag for, I can't even call it a jag anymore. I jump across the table and kiss you. Those are exactly what I'm loving right now. Barolo Barbaresco. And some of the Longa. Yeah, Longa uh, Nebbiolos are gorgeous. Um, I love the wines of Tuscany. I've always thought of them as almost a model for my wines because... They can be powerful and elegant at the same time. It's not the same flavors. They're very aromatic. They've done a good job with that. Yeah, but I just love the wines of the world. All right, great answers. Um, This is the goofiest question on the list. Is there a favorite wine and food pairing? Not something you eat every night or even every month, but something like, oh, I'm making this and I have that. Our tasting group on on, uh, New Year's Eve will always do champagne, caviar, and potato chips. It's really good. That's starting to happen a lot. There's Ariel RC opened Air Champagne Parlor. Jem Pelka from San Francisco opened the Riddler, and that type of food is showing up. Champagne is less celebratory, more cool, and people realize it's a wine that's great with food. It's I agree with good, you on good that. Good and tart, and complex and delicious. Now, um, I I sense maybe you will answer this or not. Um, but I ask everyone, do they have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar? And pointing towards people that have a good wine program, a good knowledge, an enjoyable place to go. I guess if you told me Napa, and I don't want you to be exclusive. Two, two come to mind. <laughs> okay. I'm in New York, and I've been at Aldo Somme's Wine Bar twice already. Aldo was just it on. Doesn't, it doesn't we get better. We love him. It doesn't get Everything better. Everything about the place. But a couple of years ago, uh, Matt Stamp and... And his partner, I believe they're both master sommeliers, opened Compline in, in Napa. Napa. And it's, 
I love that place. I mean, there are a few. It's just like Alda Somme. The whole world of wine is there. They're all well chosen. And then they make just a few really nice dishes. So it's not really a restaurant, but... That was the whole point of the question, where you could walk into and evoke what you said. Mm-hmm. You know, you like the environment, you like the you wine, the people. You can learn something. Right. Yeah. Those are two good ones, and like I said, I'll post them. Um, fourth question, do you have a favorite all-time wine? Now, mm. when I originally put this question on the list, the expectation was the rarest, most expensive, fancy wine, the 61 Petrus. That's not Mm-mm. where the question went. It's become very experiential or a wine that had a meaning to you at a point. Is there a wine that falls under that category? Yes. I was, <clears throat> while I was at Davis, um, I would, when I was back, at, back in the Napa Valley on weekends, we were um, caretaking on the Isley property, Milton Barbara. And Milt had a wonderful old cellar, and he poured a 1961 Chambertin Clos de Bez that to me, yes, it's fancy, yes, it was expensive, but it was it was an epiphany. <laughs> wine could be that good. I already loved wine, but that one that just... That was special. That was yeah, special. That, that wasn't around much. I know 61 was a killer year on Bordeaux. I'm assuming it wasn't bad in Burgundy. The wine was awful good. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah. All right, last question. We both have kids in our 20s. They're out on their own now. They're going to uh, parties, dinner parties. They can't show up with that crappy eight, nine, eleven dollar <laughs> bottle of wine, and they don't have the money for 40. And let's talk New York or San Fran or Napa. Recommend to me the best wine for 15, 20 bucks. Well, what retail. I t- give me a red. Give me a white. You could, if you want to stay away from specifics, you could say a category like Muscadet. No, or- it'll be it'll be <coughs> categories, and it's what we tell our kids: um, Beaujolais and Chiani. Okay, so for the reds, Beaujolais, the village, you know, mm-hmm. the cheaper ones, and Chianti, they're making regular Chiantis. Lots of good. Ki- a lot of them are really good. Killer answers. Um, and just to push people in the right direction, if you could focus on a great vintage year or a maker and it's as low end, they're going to be good wines. I, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm qualified for that, but find a good retailer, find a good wine person in a restaurant, ask for help. I still ask that's for help al- every time I go. That's always the way to go. A place that you know and like, they will point you in the right direction. And they'll have, they'll have more of the mm-hmm. Beaujolais, Beaujolais village and all that. I, what's your take on that on a white? I'm having a little more trouble with that. I tend to be a red wine drinker. Me too. Mostly. It's not exclusive. Um, Where would I go? I mean, the Loire has some really good and reasonable... um, you could leave it at that. Balanced wines. Because I believe you could find some... There's some nice Shannons and and some other stuff. That's... You're you're right on that. We were just down at... Racines last night. I'm going with, tomorrow night with, with Pascaline. With Pascaline, yeah. She'll turn you on to the Shannons. Yeah. That's yeah. her DNA. It is. Yeah, I'm glad you went down there. See, that would be a good answer to the question for New York, mm-hmm. uh, Racines, um, along with the others. All right, we have to wrap up the show, but when we wrap up, we do a feature called the Weekly Wine Sip, where we taste and evaluate a wine on air. And 
lucky for me when I get to sit with winemakers, the obvious thing is to sit down and taste their wines and who better to talk about the wines. All right, so Kathy, we are drinking, I'll set it up and you take it from there, a 2016, the Corison. You know, we talk Corison, Corison Kronos, Corison Sunbasket. This is the Corison. All right, tell me about vintage year, tell me about the wine. This is a current vintage. It's the 2016. It was a fabulous vintage. It was one of those years where it was long and cool. It wasn't scary long and cool, but it was long and cool enough that there wasn't a single day over 100 degrees Fahrenheit from Verasion, which happens to the 1st of August-ish, till we picked in September. That's a high number, but 100 and under, you're semi-safe? takes a lot of heat to get Cabernet right. Okay, and so you want that heat, but not... What's as important or more important than <clears throat> that is that the... And whenever it's long and cool, that means that the fog has come in through the Golden Gate up into the Napa Valley every single day during the ripening season. So we get these highs in the 90s, but we we have these huge diurnal shifts. The, the, the lows plummet into the 50s. Mm. And that's the kind of vintage that makes wines that are fully ripe, dark in color, full of flavor, but also have good, snappy, natural acidity, which is what I value so much. Right. So 16 is up there as one of the better recent vintages? It's a terrific vintage, okay. yes. What, take an eight, ten year window, what other vintages do you love? Do I love? Um, let's see, I loved the 11. Which is scary, considered a tough vintage. Scary, but a good but winemaker and a bad vintage gets the well, wine. Well, and want. vineyards that actually, I'm growing grapes in the warmest part of the valley on gravel pits, and so they got ripe. There were other places in the valley through nobody's fault that couldn't get fully ripe, but the 11 um, inched up to ripeness at lower sugars, but true ripeness and made beautiful wines. I love the 11, I love the 14. 16. Those are okay. my favorite. All right, so let's let's evaluate this wine. So we have to give it a sniff, and then we throw it over our tongue. So let's start with color. color. It's 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 dark garnet. You know, it's not brooding purple black. It's not inky. But it's not inky, but it's a beautiful deep. What is that garnet red? Well, it's pretty red. It's young, so there's still a fair amount of purple in it. Right. You know, it'll become more garnet, what I call garnet, um, with it, time in the bottle. But it's, it's pretty deep. Yeah. Um, but it's it's dark but not inky, and it's right. quite it's, red. And, and very um, clear. All right. Uh, nose. I'm going to defer to you to the nose descriptors, and I want to know what the descriptors are and if there's anything unique to this vintage. Aromatics in all wines are one of the most important things for me. The that's aromatics a, are crazy th- on this wine. That's a personal thing um, for me. Any of the wines of the world that I love are aromatic. Um, this, these vineyards on the bench between Rutherford and St. Lena, or in St. Lena, produce a beautiful perfume even when they're young. It's, there's cherries, the red and blue fruits, cherries and blueberries, grading into purple plums. Uh, but there's also, in great vintages, a floral component, kind of violets and lavender that ha- always happen in chorus and cabernets with thyme, but in some vintages, there's there are hints of that beautiful floral perfume, and I'm getting a little bit of that now. 
and I, don't get mad at me, but in a very good way, there at the very finish of the nose, there's a slight vegetal. Right. I Super think it, slight. Yeah, it's for me, it's more dried herbs. Yeah. Than some something of yeah, that. There's you know all the garig, other. Um, mm. Which is part of Cabernet. Right. All right. Let's talk mouthfeel. Let's throw it over the tongue, Kath. Mm. It's a beautiful mouthfeel. It's, for me, it's right where I want it to be. You know, there are delicious wines that are medium, less, you know, thin. This is not unctuous, but it's very mouth-filling. And because of the mouth-filling, you get that attack on the palate. So tell me what the mouthfeel is. Am I right? Yeah, I, you are. These For Cabernet, these are medium-bodied wines, but they're packed with flavor. There's lots and lots of flavor and complexity. So it's a full, it, when you put it in your mouth, it feels like a full mouth of full. flavor. Top, bottom, um, sides. And important to me is that there's a, there's a good um, backbone of natural acidity that's important to me. And then we talked earlier about the quality of the tannins. Tannin is just a class of compounds. It's not one thing. And tannins can be everything from, I call them ouch tannins. They hurt. They're Grainy astringent. or astringent. All the way to what I call velvety tannins. And this little corner of the world, farmed right, with lots of attention to the canopy, we get the grapes coming into the winery with tannins that already feel like velvet. And It's amazing, because I don't know, <clears throat> you would have to give me a lesson on the effect a younger wine has on a tannin. I know they integrate as they get older. Sometimes they could be grainy or sharp. These are so velvety smooth and already integrated. Yeah, they came into the. In my I mean, they're there, right? What, what happens in time to these tannins? They're there. <clears throat> they're 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 part of the structure, and they will become even softer with time. Um, the natural acidity will <clears throat> always be there. It doesn't go anywhere, so it'll always be that sort of backbone. And then the character of the the flavors will evolve over time. From right now, it's very fruit driven. And in about 10 years is what I call a sweet spot, which is when it's still going to be quite young and fruit-driven. But by then, there'll be more of this bottle bouquet thing that's pretty mm. wonderful. Mm. And then going into its second and third decade, it becomes more about the bouquet and less about the fruit over time. Will um, the bouquet remain similar to the original bouquet? No, it or it'll, it'll evolve too. It evolves okay. too. Um, yeah. Let's just... Talk to me about the palate. Does the palate reflect the nose descriptors? What do you I get on the palate? I think it does. I think it does. So tell I'm me what you get on the palate. Loads of black cherry and blueberry, plum. Um, little bit of um, peppermint, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the sort of garigi things, the sort of walking through. Yeah. Little of that at the uh, finish. Taking a hike through the mountains of Provence or something. <laughs> Kathy, I'm not going to bullshit you, but this is one of the best wines I've had in a while. Well, thank you. I, you know, I've been drinking your wines for many years. Probably haven't had a bottle in a year. You know, because of the show, I try a lot, and because of the people I know, we try different stuff. But I mean, this is truly 
one of the best cabs for you know a young vintage which means nothing because you said it's drinkable you know mm -hmm. out of the shoot um kudos to you for this and i recommend it highly and that's not what the show is about yeah. <laughs> kiss my guest's ass <laughs> yeah. you know this just happens i mean it caught me <laughs> well thank you um another thing to say about age-worthy red wines is that what you serve with them evolves over time that's always look what foods would you pair this wine with i love lamb anyway but hot and spicy with our young cabernets and and any age worthy of the acidity red wine, the gaminess. yeah, and they're the flavors are still pretty assertive, and so it'll they'll stand up to lamb. Um, as as the wines get a little older, some will switch to beef. It's a little more subtle. So I don't love lamb, never mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. A lot Very of people popular. don't. A lot of people don't. So I'm talking today, not later. I can eat this with what type of beef? Just eat it with, with a good steak. Anything, <laughs> okay. Yeah, you don't need to okay. fuss over it. Right. Um, I think with a juicy burger would be great. Oh, yeah. You know, all that yeah. stuff. And then as the wines get older and older, you would serve it with, with less and less assertive food. I had a wonderful old claret at Don Chapelet's house a long time ago. Um, and Molly Chapelet did boiled chicken. I mean, she boiled it really well, but it was boiled chicken because they didn't, the wine had become so ethereal and subtle that they wanted to be sure they didn't overpower. And a boiled it chicken is really yeah. almost neutral in a way. Yeah. That's funny. Um, all right, so this is the 2016 Corison St. Helena um, from, um, from Corison uh, Winery. Kathy, it's delicious, and thank you for bringing it in. We have to wrap up. An hour went very quickly. There's a lot more I could talk to you about, but we'll do that another time. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. We would like you to subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Face Nation. Facebook <laughs> at The Grape Nation. Uh, follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and on Twitter at BenRuby. I know it's confusing, but you could always use the hashtag The Grape Nation. The reason I want you to follow us is I'm going to post Kathy's wine list and all the info on the weekly wine sip selection on our social media sites. Um, Kathy, if we want to find more about Chorus and Wines, best place to go? Website? Our website has a lot of good information. It's and just Corison.com, C-O-R-I-S-O-N. Okay. And if we want to peek in or lurk on you a little on social media, can we find you anywhere? I'm pretty active on Instagram these days. Okay. Uh, at Kathy Corison, Kathy okay. the C Corison 1R. Uh, right. And Twitter less so, but historically fairly active. Um, okay. We try to, try to keep now, Facebook. Now, you know on Instagram you could hit the Twitter thing and it'll go on Twitter. I know, I know. I'm. <laughs> Listen, you're in New York. I'm not yeah. telling you. No, I'm not asking you. I'm commanding you that you Instagram these next few days more. You're going to uh -huh. be at the Wine and Spirits Symposium. If you bump into interesting people, take a picture. If you're in the street and you see something cool, just let it go, Kathy. <laughs> All right? I'll, I'll work on that. Come on. I'll work on that. All right, so that's at Kathy Corson. C, Kathy Corson, C. Um, all right, I want to thank our guest, Kathy Corson. Thanks for taking time while you're in New York to sit down with us. Um, thanks to our engineers, and thanks to everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation.
The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.